The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn News. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably someone who has applied for a job online. You've uploaded your resume, maybe retyped some things into a form, press submit, and then what happens? Well, that's today's show. From LinkedIn News, this is Get Hired, a podcast for the ups and downs of our professional lives. I'm Andrew Seaman, LinkedIn's Managing Editor for Jobs and Career Development. We've talked about resumes in the past, and even a little bit about what an ATS, that's Applicant Tracking System, does for the hiring team. But today, we're offering a peek behind that curtain. Brittany Swan is a resume writer, and also a recruiter. That means companies hire her to help hire talent. Brittany joined me last month on my live show to help us get to the bottom of what she does and how knowing more about the first step in the hiring process can help you make your job search easier. Now, hiring managers, who are the people you interview with, typically get anywhere from 5 to 20 resumes. But recruiters like Brittany are at the start of the process, and they have to look at hundreds and sometimes thousands of resumes Her whole job is to start weeding out people who aren't quite qualified from those who can actually do the job and pass along those qualified candidates to the next phase. First, you might be wondering, wait, a human reads those resumes? I thought a computer did that. Well, here's Brittany. I review every single application that comes my way. I have to legally. Uh, the only time I will not read a resume, and there's a big difference between the application and the resume, is if I can see immediately within the application they do not legally apply um, via geographics, they need sponsorship, or critical screening questions. But yes, every single application, every single resume is reviewed by an actual person. And if they did not, it would be against the EEOC here in the U.S. So legally, we have to review every application before rejecting them. What Brittany's talking about there is the EEOC. That's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. You know those demographic questions you can opt in or out of when you apply for a job? Well, that's all part of the same thing. The EEOC is responsible for enforcing anti-discrimination laws in the hiring process. Other countries have similar protections in place. And adhering to those laws is a key part of Brittany's job. My next question for you is basically, you know, what about those applicant tracking systems, those resume sorting robots that we've heard about? What's the deal with those? Because people often think that these, um, you know, artificial intelligence creatures are basically the ones pulling all the strings in the hiring process. But that's not the case, is it? No, I mean, they're not taking over. They're not... uh... (laughs) They're not some evil alien planet coming down and zipping job seekers. So I do see a lot of misinformation out there, either from job coaches without any recruitment experience or just things that job seekers think are true based on 
um, why they think they're not being selected for an interview. Um, the ATS system is simply an electronic file cabinet for me that just organize everybody that's applied through all these different websites into one house for me. So the ATS system does not reject anyone unless someone is physically telling it to. And some candidates will say, well, literally right when I applied, I got rejected. Well, that was either one, someone was literally in time and saw your application and rejected you, or after the application, you answered screening questions that legally rejected you out again. And again, that's sponsorship, ge geographical location, education, and then other screening questions that are non-negotiable for that role. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I always tell people, the one thing that you need to know about the applicant tracking system is that when you're entering your information online, you know, whether it's a company's website, whether it's somewhere else, you're actually interacting with the applicant tracking system. It's just that you're inputting the information into it like you would Excel, and then it puts it into where it needs to be. Um, so always read the instructions carefully, because like you said, there could be knockout questions that are really important. So if it says, are you eligible to work in the United States? And you say no, but that is a requirement, then you might just get that automatic denial. A lot of people will ask, like, why do I even need to upload my resume if it's there? Um, your resume is a marketing tool, which is really important to know. But when you upload it into the ATS, it makes it a legal document. So that is why you have to upload those and make sure it's entered individually. Yeah. When you, as a recruiter, open a resume or you see the information in the ATS, how do you actually review it? Like, what are you looking for? What, you know, what do people need to know to make sure that they're showing they really are the best applicant or at least one of the best applicants for a job? Yeah, well, I think it's really, even as a resume writer, I'm saying this, the resume is sometimes the last thing we see. We, when we click on you, it shows everything that you've entered into the system, either via parsing of your resume or manually. And so I will see where you're from, um, your screening questions, and anything that you put into the ATS, and then I download your resume. So that it's really important to know that your resume might be the last thing that's being seen. So when we go into there and we look at a resume, we're looking for hard skills only. We're not looking for if you're dedicated or have great interpersonal skills. I need to know your years of experience. I'm looking for your education. I'm looking for certs, licenses, and technology in that order. Years, education, certs and licenses, and technologies. Because those will be the mandatory things on the job description. Yeah. And also, you know, what people should probably know is that in the HR world, in the recruiting world, there's the idea of the talent funnel. And it really is a funnel because you're going from maybe a batch of 1,200 resumes or 1,200 applications, and you're really doing a very sort of top-level look and saying, okay, do they meet the minimum requirements? And then every time you get to that next level, you start sort of broadening your view, right? So then you'll look at the actual resume. Then, you know, if you get far enough along and you're almost at the hiring process, that's when you might get the background check. So it's almost the farther down the funnel you get as an applicant, the more they actually take a look at you, right? That is literally spot on. So once I know you're qualified is when I'll actually take the time and go through your actual personal experience, your own internal movements, your professional values of what, you know, those things that you actually did in the company. But it is really important to know that we will not read your document until we know you're qualified. So 
not hiding those top five key points in the professional experience piece to help me find is very critical because other applicants might be seeing these things very quickly. And I'm like, all right, this person qualifies, this person qualifies. But if you're expecting me to see that you have Tableau on your second page in a random bullet point, it's just, you're not probably going to be seen as a qualified candidate. Yeah, that is a great point. And actually, I'm jumping ahead here. Should a cover letter be included for every application? And I'm going to guess as a recruiter, you say no, right? No. Um, And I'll say this as quickly as possible. Cover letters are not used the same way as they were years ago. So they used to be used to step your foot up in front of everybody else to show how great you are and to show that you, you know, made that initiative. It's not used that way anymore. It's actually used as a screening question because when a lot of people go to apply to a job and they see that a cover letter is mandated, they'll click out immediately. And that's what we want. We want people who actually aren't just applying to 50 jobs that day. They're actually taking the time to apply to our job. Um, So it is a screening question. If a company is not asking for it, it's not going to do anything for you. If they're not asking for it, do not send one. Yeah. And now here's where I'm going to muddy the water, because as the hiring manager, especially for non-technical roles, I love cover letters. So I always disagree with uh, guests on this. And and it's not because Brittany's wrong. Recruiters usually don't read cover letters because it doesn't necessarily tell them what they need to know. Everything that they need to know is either in your application or resume. But since they're looking at like, let's say 900 applications, it's completely understandable. As someone who might get 10 for a role, I actually like them. And especially because I hire writers, I want to see how they're writing and things like that. So it's almost like a case-by-case basis. If you think like, oh, I could really show my talent. This is a non-technical role. I could show that I'm really a deep thinker here. And you know, if you're okay at not being read until you get to the hiring manager, then I say include it. And is, do you think that's okay, Brittany? I think that's totally okay. I actually had um, a candidate recently that um, we did not have an actual section on the ATS to add a cover letter. So once we did the screening with her, she um, was going on to the next part of the interview and she had the hiring manager's um, email address and she emailed them and said, Hey, I'm really looking forward to meeting you next Thursday. Here's my cover letter. So you can learn a little bit about me before then. And I thought that was a really good initiative. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, how to craft a resume that a recruiter will want to pass along. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 
And we're back with resume writer and recruiter Brittany Swan. As a resume writer and a recruiter, someone who sees both sides of this, if you're sitting down as a job seeker and say, okay, I have a blank page in front of me, I have a resume that's 20 years old, five years old, or something like that, how do you start crafting a resume that you think is going to really, you know, get you over the threshold and into a company or at least the start of the hiring process? This is a really good question. And I really am happy that you asked this. The, even if you have zero resume, pull six to eight job descriptions that you would want to apply to first. Okay. Pull six to eight job descriptions before you even start and start reading those. And you're going to start noticing that they're asking for a lot of the same things. And those things that are coming up multiple times in each job description are the things that you should be plugging into your skill set areas. So again, we're staying away from the soft skills on the resume. That's more of the um, interview, right? So when you pull the job description, what you should be looking for is those common variables. So if you see that they're asking for cross-functional team communications and you're on four out of four job descriptions, you should probably put that as a bullet point. And, you know, one of the bullet points could be stakeholder, C-level, vendor and team partnerships or communications or whatever it's looking for. That way you're aligning your actual skill sets with what the job descriptions are looking for. I see a lot of people who will write the resume first and then tweak it to every single job description. But if you are looking in the same industry or if it's about the same job description, you really should be pulling those job descriptions first. Um, and no matter what senior level or entry level you are, sticking to those years of experience, education, certs and technologies at the top of your document and not hidden in your resume. That's great pieces of advice. So should you be adjusting your resume for each job? And if so, how much should you not worry about that? If you've really written a good resume based on job descriptions, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are it gets really dangerous when you start tweaking so much of your document for every single job description. It is a waste of time because you should not be taking out any skills at all from your background. What you should be doing is minimizing it or highlighting it more or less. But when you're pulling those six to eight job descriptions, you should know exactly which skills you should be highlighting already, what those top industry or titles are looking for. And it should be very easy for you then to just apply. Yeah. Is it better to have a chronological resume or a functional resume? Yes. Um, it drives me crazy when people do not put their resumes in order, date order. So one is in date order from like, you know, 2010 to present. And the other one is based more on experience. So if you haven't been in the field in the last year, you might pop your previous job to the top versus your current job. However, uh, one of the main qualifications is me checking the years. So if you don't have a summary at the top that says that you have X amount of years of experience, I have to do math. And if your resume is not in order, I'm going, okay, where, where is the soonest or where's the farthest um, year? Okay, let me do math. Okay, they actually have seven years of experience. It's a pain in the butt and it doesn't make you look cool. I'm like, oh my God, this is not organized. Yeah. And for people who have a career gap, would you suggest putting something that says, you know, sabbatical one year or something like that to fill in those gaps? Yeah. Some people worry about job gaps for like no reason. They'll say like, oh, I had six month gap or I had a three month gap. I'm like, okay, but those aren't the type of gaps we're looking for. And honestly, just remove the months then. Because it's going to say like 2020 to 2020 then if you were just, uh, you know, 
if there was like a three or six month gap, um, those are not the type of gaps we're looking for. We're looking for like a five-year gap in technology to where you would have to learn the industry again, or you're in healthcare and you are not up to date on any of the medical compliances or procedures. Those are more of the gaps that we worry about. Um, and if you're worried about that and you'd be taking courses or you've done volunteer work during that time, just put that under your education and put the dates. The recruiter will see like, okay, during this time they went back to school. During this time they did volunteering. I mean, it, I think a lot of people are worried about that because of what they heard back in the day, but it really is a different structure in how we look at resumes in this day and age. Definitely. There are a lot of people who worry about ageism and ageism is one of those things that you can't necessarily quantify, but you know, it, you know, it's out there. Is years experience greater than 20 years beneficial or should people put maybe a career summary for things that are older than 20 years in their career? So for ageism, I never on my resumes put anything over 25 plus years because most of the industries will not be asking for anything more than 22 plus, especially for like stakeholdership. It's usually around 17. So 25 plus is what you leave it at. Don't get in the 30s. Don't get into the 27s. But when you think about what ageism is, it is the uneducated thought that based on your age, you cannot do the role. So that usually, when I think about that, I think about, okay, they're too old to learn technologies or softwares or new to learn trick or process. So that's why it's really important to put those technologies and compliances and policies and softwares um, up at the top because it mitigates that thought of like, hey, is this person going to know software? Well, they just listed 15 softwares right at the top of their resume. That kind of mitigates that ageism. Um, also, take the dates off your education. It's not needed. I just need to know that you have one. So with ageism, at least in your top summary, you can say you're a leader of 25 plus years. Keep your technologies, um, your softwares, and the most recent policies, procedures, or laws up at the top, and you'll mitigate what we're worried about. Yeah, I think those are really great pieces of advice. I think we have time for one more question. And I think this is the question that everyone always wants to know about resumes. How do you make a resume pop? Don't. Please. <laughs> Please. I will see pictures and columns and all this stuff. And every time I see it, I think, wow, you must have had a really hard time applying to this job or at parsing. You must have had to go through each section and fix it again. Um, no matter how gorgeous your resume, it could smell like perfume and reek of glitter and have llamas all over it. I would be like, oh my God, this is the coolest resume I've ever seen. And if you don't qualify, I cannot legally put you forward. One, it would show that I'm favoring you because you had a pretty resume and that's against EEOC and I could be sued and then the company can be sued. I'm not going to lose my job because of a pretty resume. Keep your template as simple as possible. Keep your qualifications to the top. I could care less what kind of template it is as long as I can read it and as long as your qualifications are up at the top. Got it. So, Brittany, if I understand what you're saying... I won't get a job as a software engineer if I just show a recruiter a pretty picture? 
Yes. Um, <laughs> and that's really funny because I actually received a picture the other day that said, I am very handsome and well-educated. I know that I could bring value to your company. And I was like, okay, well, if I responded to you, that's illegal because you brought up your looks and your education immediately. <laughs> so these types of things can actually hurt you. Well, at the very least, you no, know, he has a high self-esteem, so I'm pretty <laughs> sure he probably dusted himself off and kept going. Uh, but Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is fun. That was resume writer and recruiter Brittany Swan. Remember, it's up to you to put our advice into practice. Still, you always have a community backing you up and cheering you on. Connect with me and the Get Hired community on LinkedIn to continue the conversation. And if you liked this episode, leave us a rating on Apple Podcast. It helps people like you find the show. And of course, we'll continue this conversation next week right here, wherever you like to listen. Get Hired is a production of LinkedIn News. This episode was produced by Michelle O'Brien. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming at LinkedIn. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Andrew Seaman. Until next time, stay well and best of luck. <laughs>